0: Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered.
1: On this special episode, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Matthew D. Welder to War Docs. He'll provide his perspectives on the Joint Trauma System Clinical Practice Guideline, which focuses on the care and management of the drowning patient. Dr. Welder is a board certified anesthesia provider and a retired army combat veteran who also is a certified dive master and a fellow of the Academy of Wilderness Medicine. He developed operational readiness programs of study for dive medicine, military mountain medicine, cold weather medicine, and avalanche at the Uniformed Services University. You can learn more about his bio on WardocsPodcast.com. In this episode, Lieutenant Colonel Welder provides some of the key take-home messages from the drowning CPG. He also offers some expert advice from a wealth of experience in dealing with environmental hazards, both in the maritime and expeditionary settings. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome back retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Matthew D. Welder to War Docs. Matt, thanks for joining us today. Thanks a lot. I'm glad to be back.
2: Matt, you have extensive dive and maritime medicine training and much experience, including being the pioneer of the USU dive medicine and water rescue program. Tell us a little bit about your background in maritime and dive medicine. So, it started when
3: I was asked by a young officer how I was able to stay calm under pressure and I've always known that water was a great equalizer meaning a lot of people when they get in water they'll they'll panic or be nervous and I was that way very young and so I started scuba diving and like everything that i do it just couldn't be your basic open water certification so I got open water certified and advanced open water rescue and and then every certification that that I could expose myself to i I started exposing myself and then I just started diving around the world. And during that diving experience, I realized that it becomes very important to understand your equipment and how to save someone or save yourself if you find yourself in a maritime environment. And that really came to light as I started traveling to third world countries to dive and realized that they just didn't have the equipment, training, required if something bad would happen on the water.
1: The Joint Trauma System Clinical Practice Guidelines cover the care of combat injured patients. And one of those eight focus areas involves environmental care. So what we want to do today is discuss in a little bit more detail the management of the drowning patient. And so you're an expert diver and they have a clinical practice guideline on drowning management. What I'd like you to do is just kind of We'll go through some questions, but we really want to get what's important for folks who are going to go into an operational environment or experience these types of patients. What do they really need to know? So I'll let Wayne start with the first question.
2: So as an advanced diver, when you come up on a patient who you suspect has drowned or is drowning, what are some of the focus areas you think of when you are assessing that situation and what you might do clinically? when I've approached that situation, the first thing that goes through my mind is who's
3: with me to assist in this rescue. How am I going to initiate the rescue? And when I'm initiating the rescue, are there distractors that's going to impede my success? So what does that mean? If you happen to be out diving or on a cruise and you are surrounded by a bunch of people you don't know, when tragedy strikes, a lot of panic happens, crowd control becomes a big issue. So understanding your environment and who's around you becomes important. Now, prior to that happening, I step way back and say, if I'm going on an expedition, what do I need to have to save myself? What potentially do I need to have to take care of others? So I make sure on my person I carry a litany of things the first thing you got to do is is the person conscious or unconscious is the person panicking or not panicking and you have to make that decision immediately if they're unconscious throwing something to them is not going to help you physically have to get that individual if they are conscious and not panicked can you talk to them can you encourage them can you give them something to grab can you throw them a flotation device. So throughout this whole experience, you don't want to become a casualty yourself. And a lot of people want to jump into that hero mode and dive in the water and start doing all this training. But at the end of the day, that's usually what gets people in trouble. So that's the first thing. If they're panicked, panicked is what kills people. Panic is what kills rescuers. So there is a very methodical approach to dealing with somebody that is panicked on the surface of the water. And I would advise anybody to do the training, watch some videos, learn how you approach a panic diver. Jumping in the water with a panic diver is never a good idea unless the proper technique to take control of that panic diver. So the CPGs, and I encourage all the listeners to just start reading a CPG a day because they're fantastic on the JTS website, but this CPG specifically talks about reaching and throwing and rowing and towing and then going. The very last thing the CPG recommends is you physically getting into the water.
1: So you want to think through that process before you initiate the rescue. When you get to the patient and you're doing your initial assessment and you're kind of doing ABCs, you want to know if they're breathing, you want to know if they've got a pulse How is it different from just a CPR scenario where you find somebody down in the hallway or on the street? How is a a drowning victim different?
3: So they're either going to be panicking or they're going to be unconscious. If they are panicking and talking, they're more than likely going to start taking in water, which is going to develop a laryngospasm, which typically is going to cause a pulmonary edema. If they're unconscious and you're in the water, you have to. No, how am I going to get this person from the water to the boat? Again, time becomes of the essence because water's 25 times more cooling than, than air. Hypothermia is already starting to kick in, even if you're in the warmer environment. And you have to physically get them either up onto a vessel, up on land, whatever the situation is. So when you start going through that process, the only thing that I'm going to do in water If I can't get them onto the vessel immediately, I always carry tourniquets on me. If there's a bleed, if you're doing March survey and there's massive hemorrhage, I will put a tourniquet on. If they don't have an airway, I will start respiration, mouth-to-mouth respiration. You can't do chest compressions in the water. It's not effective. So your sole focus entering that water is getting them to a hard platform expeditiously. That becomes your sole focus. If you can't do that, then you got to think about in-water resuscitation.
2: So one of the things that can happen, right, is the water, as you mentioned, can be warm or it can be cold. And so the cold environment is the one that maybe is found in the expeditionary setting. What are your tips for people when they are potentially encountering either the thought of going out to rescue in the cold environment or then bringing in the patient from the cold environment? So, cold water, if you are
3: entering into that environment, you need to make sure that you're thermally protected. And even if you are thermally protected, when water hits your face, it causes a gasp response. So as a rescue or going into a cold body of water, you need to understand the 1101 principle, which basically says, I'm going to jump in, I'm going to start gasping. When you start gasping, you don't want to take water into your mouth. The 1101 is you have one minute to get your breathing under control. You have 10 minutes of purposeful movement. You have one hour to succumb to hypothermia. If I'm the rescuer, I need to have all of the personal protective equipment to ensure that I don't violate that one ten one principle. So I need to make sure that I'm maintaining my core temperature so I don't lose purposeful movement in my extremities. Jumping into cold water to rescue somebody and you don't have the proper equipment, you will have 10 minutes and you will become a casualty yourself. So cold water creates a different environment that you have to train and be familiar
1: with if you're going to be attempting to enter it for a rescue scenario. You mentioned that one of the things that's really dangerous is that you start really gulping and swallowing water in a drowning scenario. And we've seen pictures and movies of people who are come out of a drowning scenario and people are doing abdominal thrusts and trying to do Heimlich maneuvers to get that water out of their system. Is there a role for trying to remove the water, let's say through an NG tube? Is there ever a role for Heimlich maneuver? And where in the resuscitation plan does dealing with the amount of water swallowed come in?
3: Yeah. So that's been myth busted. I mean, nothing I love more than the old picture of the guy wheeling the person over the barrel to empty the water out of a drowning victim. It's just a complete waste of time and it doesn't work. First, it doesn't matter if it's fresh or sold. The electrolyte imbalance, forget it. It just does not make a difference physiologically or pathophysiologically. Taking time to try to do Heimlich and remove, absolute waste of time. Immediately start delivering oxygen and continue with the way you would normally do your ABCs.
2: There just is not a benefit to doing it that way. So when you rescue a patient and bring them out of the water and you have them laying there in a safe environment, what is your priorities as far as the management of their care? Is it primarily airway or are you also working through other issues that you're concerned about? Three ways to save a life. And whether it's a drowning victim or somebody on the
3: battlefield, I look at air going in and out, blood going round and round, prevent further cooling by keeping them warm. with the maritime environment, you also want to consider a mechanism of injury because one of the leading causes of deaths in tourist area are prop injuries. So you may not see a big, massive bleed in the water. People worry about sharks. People worry about envenomations. Props is really what get people. So, and then swimming pools, of course, diving into a shallow end with, with sea spine, but sea spine injuries are exceedingly rare in the maritime environment. So you try to be cautious but in big open bodies of water c-spine typically does not become the focus so again i go to the same thing now with with the changes in how we learn cpr where they're saying do chest compressions before you breathe remember there's environments where where that changes up so if you're a drowning victim it's airway get get Air into them, get oxygen into them. Lightning strikes, avalanche burial. There's certain things where breathing becomes the primary over circulation. So when I approach a maritime casualty, I'm thinking: Is the air going in and out? Blood going around and round? Is it a drowning or is there a massive hemorrhage, prop strike, something like that? And then the biggest thing is cooling has already started, so I've got to prevent further cooling. So making them trauma naked on the deck of a boat with the with your, your four different processes of taking the temperature away, specifically in the water evaporation and then laying on the, on the boat with, with conduction, you want to start getting them covered up and dried up. And now comes the time where you got to ask yourself, do I have all the equipment I need to be successful? Does the boat or the vessel I'm on have all the equipment they need to be successful? And am I prepared to use that equipment to go to the next level? And then that becomes the MARCH survey, and those aren't familiar with MARCH. It's massive hemorrhage and airway and respiration and circulation. And then you look at hyperthermia and then hiker helicopter. How are you going to get them out? Well, by this, maybe boat, maybe traveling to the shore, maybe Coast Guard high angle rescue.
2: So one of the other unique aspects that military providers may be faced with, particularly in an expeditionary environment. Is swimming induced pulmonary edema, which can occur in military divers and is even reported as high as 1.4% in triathletes. Have you ever encountered this? And how would you describe this to the average military medical provider and what your thoughts are on this topic? Swimming induced pulmonary edema typically is from
3: strenuous swimming on the surface. So we have the Navy, Navy SEALs, we have military, Army divers. And when you do a lot of surface swimming and and strenuous activity and really doing a lot of drawing deep in the lungs, you can start doing some forced pulmonary edema. I think we see a lot of pulmonary edema specifically in these maritime environments, secondary to little bouts of laryngospasm, saltwater, water hitting their vocal cords or vocal cords snapping shut, them drawing against that closed vocal cord and really causing a pulmonary edema effect. But most certainly, it's it's well reported. If you look at the CPGs, it talks very clearly about swimming-induced pulmonary edema and triathletes and the recurrence. The reality is the vast majority of the time, they self-recover. So this again goes back to what equipment, and I hope you ask me what is essential to have. Because it's oxygen, 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 whether it's a drowning victim, somebody that has pulmonary edema, it's unconscious, somebody that that's has some type of dive-related injury, first thing's always going to be oxygen. Fortunately, it treats 99% of what we come across in the maritime environment.
1: Is there anything unique in a drowning scenario? You know when or when not to terminate resuscitative efforts at the point of care? So that's one of the most difficult things
3: we all go through in the in as healthcare professionals is when do you stop And most certainly there's there's some hard and true facts. If you want textbook answers referring to the drowning CPG, we'll give it to you. but in my experience, when you come across a casualty, if they are dead, rigor mortis is set in, decapitation, frozen solid on the base of a mountain, rescue efforts are not going to be helpful. The problem is in maritime and in cold, you don't always know. So you initiate the efforts and the old adage, and it's very cliche, is someone's not dead till they're warm and dead. Well, this comes because we have people like Dr. Anna from Sweden, who was submerged for 80 minutes under ice water, was in cardiac arrest and they revived her and she went on to become a radiologist herself. This is 80 minutes with her head underwater in in freezing water. So you most certainly need to consider yourself. Do you have rescuer's fatigue? Are you putting the team or yourself at risk for continuing resuscitation? How long have you been in the field doing resuscitation? Kind of, if you've been doing CPR for an hour and, and they're normal thermic, you should probably stop. If they're hypothermic, I believe the recommendation is got to get the patient normal thermic. What I would say to people, if you're doing CPR in the field, what should be on your mind is how do you get them to the higher level of care, the highest level of care, or a higher level of care, the fastest possible. That's what should be going through the rescuer mindset. And again, it becomes a very difficult decision, right? You have to make that decision and you have to be comfortable with the decision you make. There's clear-cut guidelines, but I've never been in a situation where clear-cut guidelines define the answer that we decided. Given your
2: vast, over 1,800 dives, I understand that you've also recently written a little handbook for the Wilderness Medicine Society for people to be able to access. Tell us about that book, but then the question is, what do you carry with you? So, the book is designed to give the layperson
3: and The expert medical provider, the nuts and bolts of exactly how do you approach a maritime injury, a casualty. So it's more than drowning. It really talks about cardiac events, dive-related injuries, prop lacerations, even to include getting a fish hook stuck in your hand. So this is really kind of the dummy's guide for medical intervention in the maritime environment. The question you asked is: what do I carry? And so for me, I carry items that I can save myself. And then I carry items that I can be helpful to others around me. At the end of the day, whether I'm diving, whether I'm on the boat, fishing, or, or just pleasure, I always carry two tourniquets. Every year in Key West, many kids and adults are killed by prop strikes. So I carry two tourniquets. I always make sure I have oxygen on the vessel and the ability to deliver oxygen and somebody else on the vessel that knows how to deliver the oxygen. Very commonly you see people carry a bunch of kits but they don't know how to use the items that's inside. I carry an ambu bag, one that collapses very small. I carry a basic bleeder kit, most common injury stubbing toes, blisters. I carry the ability to dry out ears, mixing white vinegar and and alcohol to make a nice little solution to to get water out of your ears. And I carry on the boat, a SCEDCO litter, which allows me to be able to get an unconscious patient on onto the vessel. And I'm sure there's a myriad of other small little things, but but that becomes the bulk of it. And then most importantly, I carry my save a dive kit with extra O-rings and stuff to, to make sure I didn't travel all the way out there and
1: not get to go under. Well, it's really nice to talk to an expert in an area that most of us are not going to ever see. But... If we do see, it's nice to have these CPGs' principles behind us. One thing I would ask is these CPGs came from 2017, so about six years ago. Is there anything new that people should be aware of before this CPG gets updated?
3: I think one of the more important things is we think about the military and we don't think about drowning. It becomes an afterthought, it's not on the forefront of. Are discussions and people are drowning in the deserts and vehicles are rolling over in waters and we see humanitarian disasters with drowning and and really we got to get a CPG that just doesn't talk about some basic snippets of different casualties that you can encounter. We really need to expand the CPG to talk about the physiology, the pathophysiology. Uh, make sure we have all the current scientific data and really give the reader a step-by-step guide to be able to evaluate and and treat these different casualties. Because it's a topic that a lot of people are uncomfortable with, they just kind of go back to the current textbooks when they're putting CPGs together. And, and I'm not taking away anything that they've done. I'm just saying that drowning and maritime, there's so much that goes into approaching one of these casualties and dive-related accidents and maritime-related accidents, I think there's an opportunity. It's been five years to to really expand that that clinical practice guideline.
1: We've been speaking with retired Army Lieutenant Colonel and Dive Master Matthew D. Welder on Wardocs Podcast. Matt, thanks again for sharing your experience and talking about these CPGs.
3: Well, I really appreciate what you guys are doing at, at Wardocs Military Medicine Podcast and just keep doing great things, and, and I love listening to every new one that comes out. Thank
0: you, guys. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts, and rate and review this episode, and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team War Docs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.